You are listening to a sermon by New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. People of God, God's word comes to us from the book of Ephesians this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please open it to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be starting from verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, no worry, that is printed up for you in our church bulletin. In honor of reading God's word, if you are willing and able, would you please rise from your seats? From Genesis to Revelation, these are the words of our God. Therefore, listen now very carefully. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thus far has been reading of God's word, amen. Please be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that you have provided for us. We thank you for your word. And now as we attempt to dive into it, Holy Spirit, would you go before us, work in our hearts and our minds, so that your words wouldn't be heard simply as human words. That the sight of human mortal being up here would not be a distraction. That only your word will find its rightful place at the core of our hearts, to be a light unto the path into this life that we live called faith. So help us, Lord. Lead us, Holy Spirit. And so now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts praise and bless the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and his only. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. I still remember the first night I came home from work after being married I walked into my little Escondido apartment and remember being greeted by my wife's cheerful voice, welcome home, and walking into this aroma of delicious food that my wife had prepared. Yeah, the perks of being married. Just kidding. But I remember, I mean, mean, it's still a perk, but you know, I'm not kidding about that. But what I do remember particularly about that night is... I was so touched and so moved. I remember eating that food, extremely grateful for what my wife had done. Because it wasn't expected. I never asked her to do it. But I know she prepared that meal because she loved me. And so ever since then, she would always cook up this wonderful dinner for me whenever I can make it home from work. And then soon, she would not only cook for me, but also for our two wonderful sons. And she did all this despite the fact that she too was very tired from having a full-time job. But she prepared a dinner for us every night whenever she can 
because she loved us. Wonderful wife. But as time went on, me being the not such a good husband that I am, my gratitude towards my wife's dinners began to wane. Right? Perhaps because I was getting used to it. I mean, I would still say thanks, but really it was a habitual response. Oh, thanks, hon. What a wonderful meal. Or perhaps it's because as our boys entered into our lives, that wonderful, quiet, lovely dinner Alice and I used to enjoy become a full-out war zone. Right? <laughs> Alice and I are yelling at our boys, eat your veggies, eat this food, eat this food. Or it was me just sitting there being completely disgusted because of the amount of spilled food I was everywhere. Whatever it may be, whatever the reason is, as time went on, with familiarity and all these things, I began to lose my sight of being grateful for something that my wife was doing out of her love. But I suppose this is true for almost anything in human life. For young people here who appreciate things like sneakers, perhaps it's that brand new all-white Nike Air Force ones you put on thinking it makes you look so cool. Except after wearing it for about a week or so, you completely forget about that shoes that excited you so much. Or perhaps it's that dream job that you got that put butterflies in your stomach that you were so excited to start where you started to complain maybe three days after, oh my goodness, I am so tired. Or come Sunday night, you would start complaining, I can't believe I have to go to work tomorrow. In time, with familiarity and for various reasons, It seems that with us in the human experience, as we get used to things, we forget about the value of all the things that are around us. Now, what's my point? The point is this, people of God. Oftentimes, we can do the same with very well-known passages or very well-known familiar doctrines like the grace of God. We can treat them the way sometimes I treat, not all the time because my wife's here, I've got to be careful, um, the way I sometimes treat my wife's dinner, or the way we treat brand new things that we acquire for ourselves. As we get used to it, it becomes white noise. But I'll tell you today, as we go into God's word, my challenge to all of you is this. Yes, we are looking at a passage that is very familiar, especially in a Reformed Presbyterian church. Ephesians chapter 2 is like our banner Right? And I heard some of the kids know the song, Ephesians 2 8 9. It goes like, Ephesians 2 8? I don't know the song. Anyway, there's a song. It's a familiar passage. And then added to that, the doctrine of grace of God is a very well known doctrine to us. We speak about grace every week. But my dear friends, God's word and a doctrine as important as the grace of God cannot become white noise. So I challenge you this morning to listen carefully, to listen with humility, approach the subject that you know very well of, but approach it with a heart that's asking the Lord, please illuminate your truth in my mind and my heart that I may be able to apply these truths into my life. So with that said, it is my hope and prayer for all of us this morning that you will leave here thinking about the grace of God and all its implications and that you will leave here moved by the Holy Spirit to live in that truth. For this is what Paul is showing to us in our passage. He is showing, masterfully, masterfully showing us the grace of God that is at work in our lives. And that grace of God is not only working to transform and to help and to bless, but it is also working to call us to live in that grace. So for that reason, we will explore our passage in three points. 
First is the power of transformation. Second is the power of resurrection. And third is the power of exaltation. So let's go to our first point, the power of transformation. And here we simply want to focus uh, to recognize the power of God that is at work in us. What is the power of grace of God? What is it doing? And to understand as we begin where Paul starts for us in verse 2, he says, and you were dead. That's an opening, isn't it? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. By saying this, what Paul does here is for the first time in the letter of Ephesians, he introduces this paradigm of transformation or change that he will revisit later on a couple times. And the idea is going from dead to alive. To understand God's grace then, we have to start from where we came from. That is our deadness. Now, to be clear, if you're anything like me, you probably sit there and thinking, well, how does a dead people sin? So clearly, here Paul is not talking about a physical death. But he is speaking of spiritual death. When he says you are dead in the trespasses, he's speaking about your state, the state of your spiritual life. And he's saying that you, those who live in sin, are those who are living in perpetual state of death. Why? Because the ultimate end for sinners is that in the end they will meet the wrath of God. For that very reason, Paul tells us that they are by nature children of wrath, those who've been set reserved by God for his wrath. And who is God after all, but the one who is able to destroy not only the body, but also the soul. And being a sinner, you are in complete contrast of God. You are, a rebel, you are a rebel in God's eyes. You are the complete opposite of him who is holy. So those who live in sin are those who are perpetually, spiritually dead, for there is no hope for them against a holy God. But what is more, to make things a little worse, we have to consider how dangerous sin is. Sin is powerful, Dear Christian, I hope you never underestimate the power of sin. Satan and his temptation is much stronger than you. You may think of yourself as a mature Christian, and you may think that you could face sin head on and defeat it, but the truth is, you can't. For Satan is spirit, and he knows how to tempt you. And he knows what to tempt you with. You recall these words, did God really say, take a bite and you will be like him? Was a temptation of the serpent in the garden to our first parents. It was very pointed temptation, specific temptation that cut to the core of the first parent, Adam and Eve's heart. Satan is stronger than us, wiser than us, greater than us. And as he tempts, we can't help without Christ. We can't help but to buy into that sin. Why? Because as I mentioned, those temptations are specific for us. He knows how to tempt us. He knows what it is that we desire in our hearts. And what is more? Sin puts us in a cycle of continual dissatisfaction because sin promises what it cannot give. 
It's a deceiver. Think about our Lord Jesus in the wilderness and think about the very last temptation Satan proposed to our Lord Jesus. What did he say? He said, bow to me, serve me, and I will give you authority over all things. Think about that. Isn't that kind of ridiculous? Satan clearly knows who Jesus is. He knows he's God. And yet he has the galls to go to Jesus and say, you know what, just bow to me and I will give you dominion over all things as if he has the authority to provide that. But that's what Satan does. He is a deceiver. He promises what he cannot give. And he does the same with us. But the problem for us is we like those temptations. They sound good. And we think that the more we bind to those promises, that we will be satisfied. The truth is, that is not true. In fact, the, the, the satisfaction our sin gives to us is so small that it actually causes dissatisfaction. And we are left right where we began. If you don't believe me, listen to the words of King Solomon from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He writes in verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refuse my heart no pleasure. If you don't know, King Solomon was one of the wealthiest uh, kings in the history of God's people. He was also very wise. And with all these things, he was kind of cool. He was one of the best kings, right? And so he, but being filthy rich, he got to have whatever he wanted. He was able to gather. He was able to collect whatever he wanted, including thousand women, 600 wives and 400 concubines, scripture tells us. In the eyes of the world, when you look at King Solomon, you would think, this guy had it all. He had riches, he had fame, he had wisdom, and then he had popularity. He had it all. In that life, we read once again, chapter 2, verse 10 of Ecclesiastes, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. And so you would imagine, he must be very happy then. He has everything he wants. But no, his response in verse 11 is this. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the grim reality of sin, my dear brothers and sisters. Sin calls you very specifically to what it is that you desire. It promises you things it cannot give, and then it makes you chase after. It makes you chase after those things. So, this is what I mean when I say those who are in sin are spiritually dead. You are against God by nature, the children of wrath. And as you live in sin, you are stuck in the cycle of hopelessness that Satan and, his, and sin and temptation has trapped you in. Can you get out of it by simply not sinning? You can't. Why? Because even if you were to stop sinning, there's still the problem of past sin. How are you going to justify yourself before a holy God and somehow justify yourself of your past sins? You just can't. So those who are living in sin are those who are perpetually living in a state of hopelessness that leads to spiritual death. You can't escape it. There is no hope. It is impossible. And it is from this state that the Lord Jesus Christ, our Heavenly Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has saved you. 
And here we jump to our second point, the power of resurrection. For here we see how God uses his power of grace to transform us. And in particular, what we want to focus on here is that while we were still dead in our sins, impossible to get away from it, what our God does is what we could not do, escaping the crutches of sin and bringing us uh, and making us alive in him. Listen to the words of Apostle Paul, starting from verse 4. And verse 4 begins with one of the most exciting phrases that we find in scripture, which is, but God. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive together with him. He changed us from being dead people to living people. Now just consider this point. Let's think about it in human terms, shall we? How difficult is it to change somebody? It's super hard. Parents, I'm sure you understand. Just think about changing one bad habit that your child has. It's pretty hard, right? It takes a lot of repetition, a lot of reminder, a lot of nagging, a lot of discipline, and our kids hate it because they hate all those things, especially when it comes from your parents. Like, I've been trying to... I won't identify. Like one of my sons cannot eat food without opening his mouth. Right? It's like, come on, man. And it's been a long, many years. I can't say his age either, then he'll know who I'm talking about. It's been so long, but I cannot get him to stop chewing with his mouth open. It's impossible. And I've like yelled at him. I've joked with him. I've, 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 I've bribed him. It just doesn't work. It's so hard. It is so hard to change a human being. Consider a more serious example. Consider an alcoholic. It's so hard to change an alcoholic. You would think if they stopped drinking, then they would stop being an alcoholic, but that's not the truth. Just because they stopped drinking doesn't make them any, uh, an unalcoholic. They are still an alcoholic. Their problem is that they have to refrain from drinking because they know once they have one drink, they will desire a second and then a third and then a fourth. They will continually want to drink because for them, there is nothing better than the feeling of drinking. For that reason, an alcoholic has to fight tooth and nail every day to refrain from drinking. See, it's so hard to change a person. And yet this is exactly what God has done. He changed us from deep within, from the deepest of our core. He transforms us to becoming his children. But not only that, there is a substance to this transformation. And that substance is this. We are being transformed into the glorious image of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Friends, Christianity is not a religion about making a better you. Grace does not transform us to make us a better James, or whatever your name is. Grace does not do that. What grace does is it provides you with the work of God who saves you, redeems you from your sins, and then it transforms you to become more and more like him. In particular, the resurrected Christ. And that is an 
amazing, astounding truth if you just kind of sit back and think about it. My friends, who are we becoming more and more like? Like Jesus, the resurrected one. And yesterday during Theology on Tap, Dr. Craig Troxell, who taught for us, um, he mentioned something that I had completely forgotten about. And I'll share with you here this, this wonderful point, which is, you know, when Jesus ascended from, from earth to heaven, he didn't go as a spirit. He went as a God-man in his human body. That's, that's the resurrected Christ that you and I are being transformed into. Not just a spiritual thing, but an actual God-man who is sitting at the right hand of the Heavenly Father in his human body. That's who we are being transformed into. Just consider what that means. On the one hand, if Christ is resurrected, it means that he has defeated sin and he has defeated death. That's the image we are being transformed into. Not of one who still struggles with the sting of death, but one who is victorious over it. In other words, beloved, you are being transformed into the image of Christ who is victorious over sin and over death. And sin may tempt you over and over to sin again, and you may fail, but because of who we are being transformed into, there is a wonderful comfort that we can take, which is Christ, Christ will help us. He is with us. Even as we sin, he is faithful. Even as we fail, he is there to pick us up back again, because we are being transformed into his image not ourselves, into the image of Christ who has defeated sin and death. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? So then let's move on to our final point here, the power of exaltation. And as we go into our final point, we will ask a simple question, which is, so what? Everything I've told you, shared with you so far, I'm sure it's nothing new But let us consider why these things are important. Why are these truths important to us? And to answer the question, I begin with a question. That's a lot of questions. What is Christ now doing in his heavenly throne? That is a question. And the answer is, Paul tells us that he is reigning in power. He is seated at the right hand of God and he is reigning in power. Follow-up question then is, what is Jesus doing with that power? And the answer is, first and foremost, he is working. Working for who? For us. In that wonderful power that Gospel of John describes as the power that created all things, that very power of God, the very power that resurrected Jesus from the dead, the very awesome power of God, that power is now working for us. What that means is, at every juncture of our lives, Christ is working for us. For us. He's with us. 
And so when we are tired, we can be certain that he is our strength. When we are afraid, we can be certain that he will be our courage. When we are reviled and mocked, we can be certain that he will be there to be our encouragement. When we are lost, he is there to be a light unto our path. And when we are faithless, he is there to be faithful to us. So friends, when you find yourself deep down in the trenches of life that causes you to great suffering, feeling like you are in an impossible place, stuck, look to Jesus who is working for you. And this Jesus is working for you in sympathy, but also in empathy. Because you have a Savior who knows what it means to be you. You have a Savior who understands what it means to be a human being here in this world. For our Lord Jesus, he too was tired. He felt it as he carried that cross for you. He too was afraid as his time on the death on the cross approached him. He too was reviled, mocked, and scorned by the very ones he came to save. He too was lost as he cried out, My father, my father, why have you deserted me? He too was lost as the father turned his face away. He who knew no sin became sin so that we who knew sin might become the children of God. Turn to Christ. The very Christ by the power of grace who has saved you from your sins and and is transforming you into his own image. You are his and he is working for you and he will never abandon you. And he is an intimately personal God, not a stranger. He knows what it is that you need. He knows your pains. Turn to him. But as our God, Lord Jesus Christ, is reigning for us, he is also reigning through us. The last couple of weeks, Dr. Jason Berry and President Joel Kim has uh, expounded um, chapters, the entire chapter 1 of Ephesians for us. And through it, we've learned that we are Jesus' inheritance. Now, to further understand that, think about it in this way. In the ancient world, similar in the time where Paul was writing to the Ephesians, the way kings Gathered, uh, accumulated their wealth was by taking the treasures of their conquered enemies. And then what they would do is they would display those treasures like a trophy in their palace, wall, whatever it may be. But when they were displaying these trophies, they weren't displaying to show off their wealth. No, there was a more bigger reason than that, which was to show the other enemies, this is who I am. These treasures are symbol of my power. I have conquered all these people. Don't mess with me. This reminds me of what uh, Pastor Joel Kim taught us last week when he, uh, when he taught us that, that if the death of Christ on the cross is a symbol of his love, then the resurrection of Christ is a symbol of his power. And friends, We, his inheritance, we are the very spoils, the treasure that Jesus took from his conquered enemy, Satan. As his inheritance, we are his treasure that is displaying before the world to show his power. 
And what is that power? It's the power of grace. Listen to what Paul writes in verse 7 again. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let me read that once again, but with a little emphasis added here. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. We, as his treasures, his inheritance, we are a symbol of his power, his power of grace. For me, that's mind-boggling. Because for one, I'm not a very gracious person to begin with. Not the nicest guy you'll meet in life. But somehow it is through me that God is going to present the power of his grace to others. For me, that is mind-boggling and amazing. And what's more amazing is that it, that's how it works. He does it. He does use people like me to make his grace known in the world. I'll share a personal story with you that, that might help you understand what I mean by this. When I first became a pastor, I became a pastor with a big, big worry in my heart. And it's because I know my strength and my weaknesses. And for me... I'm super critical of myself in this background. And so for me, my, my biggest weakness as a pastor is the fact that is I'm not very good at preaching. I'm not very good at teaching. So when I first began ministry, this was a huge worry and burden on myself. And when I began uh, my first uh, uh, call as a pastor, I spent like 30-something odd hours into each sermon. I'm trying to get good. And it just happened so that the one pastor I listened to most as I was trying to get better in preaching was Pastor Ted Hamilton, right? So I was trying every week to become more like him. But not only that, I'm also trying to be like Dr. Julius Kim, my, pro- my uh, 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 preaching professor. I'm trying to be like Dr. Dennis Johnson. I'm trying to be like President and Joel Kim, I'm trying to be like all these guys who are so much better than me. And it was so annoying because I couldn't do it. It's so hard. So hard. What's my point? The point is this. Even as I wrestled with my own weaknesses and the poor quality of my sermons, the reality was that God used it. People somehow came to know Christ and people somehow Their faith grew while they were sitting under my preaching. It's like magic. It's a miracle. I don't get it. But that is who our God is. It's not about us. So often God uses the meek and the weak to display the great power of his grace. And that's who we are, people of God. He wants to display his power, the power of his grace to the world through you. Oh, Carl's not here. Where is Carl? I think Carl, no. Carl, wherever you are, thank you for sharing with us what, you, what happened in, in Germany. Because isn't that amazing? A, a, a man came to faith. A guy came to faith despite all the tragedy he was facing. But that's our God. When his people work, he will use it and he will produce faith. Uh, fruit. What does that mean? In closing, what does that mean? People of God, let us then learn to live in that grace. Let us then learn to live in that grace of God. How so? 
Starting from chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul begins to give exhortation to the Ephesians. This is how you ought to live. In the, midst, in the middle of all that, he goes, he starts in chapter 5 by saying this, Therefore, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God as beloved children. And then he says, walk in love. And here, Paul is simply echoing the words of our Lord Jesus Christ when he said, and this is how the world will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Apostle, Apostle John also echoes these sentiments when he writes from 1 John chapter 4, where in almost every sentence, he is talking about love, loving God, loving one another, over and over and over again. Let us learn to live in this grace. How? First and foremost, by loving one another. We are his children. We are the symbol of his power, the power of his grace. Let us walk in love. And as you do it, may this be a wonderful inspiration for you. Because sometimes I get it. Sometimes loving each other is kind of hard. And sometimes hating somebody feels so much better, doesn't it? Imagine driving on the road, somebody cuts you off. Well, you want to cut them right back. Feels so good. Take that. But honestly, we're just promoting our own self-righteousness. There is nothing good about that. We're not promoting Christ. People of God, in the work of love and kindness that we do, he will use it. And if you need an evidence, remember how Christ came to you. He didn't come to you with words of judgment. He didn't come to you with hell and brimstone. He came to you in kindness, in grace, because kindness leads to repentance. As we understand the power of the grace that has transformed us from dead people to living people who are being transformed into the image of Christ, let us then learn to live in that grace. And so I finish with these final words that we've heard last week. Therefore, people of God, be strong. Walk in his grace. For he will do mighty things through us. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. As we, Lord, now leave this place, Holy Spirit, would you take these feeble words of man, turn it into the very food for our souls, a very light unto our path, that it might become a wisdom that comes from you, that leads us through this journey of faith. Help us, Lord, and guide us so that we may be be able to apply these truths into our lives. In Christ we pray. Amen. You've been listening to New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.